Hello and welcome to the podcast of the Lotus Eaters, episode 780 for today, the 2nd of November, 2023. I am joined by my co-hosts, Harry and Bo. Hello. And we'll be discussing why we should remigrate, remigrate them all. Not, not my words, hope not hate, don't worry, um, that they know that we're going extinct and how Mr. Beast has destroyed Africa with aid and charity. Um, just adding an S onto one of those words would change no, no, the tone no, no, I, I, really badly. I made sure not to slip on my typing hand when yep. I was writing that. Fantastic. Uh, just a couple of announcements before we go. Tomorrow afternoon, Thursday, three o'clock kickoff time, we've got Lads Hour, number 10. It's our third birthday, third anniversary of the company. We're doing a Q&A. We've got at least five hosts on there. Uh, so you can come and ask us bits as we reminisce about our time at Lotus Seas. So that should be good fun. And I do know that on Saturday, Epox is out. I believe it's a freemium, Govry Bloom. It's about the Great War. Um, so go and watch that in honor of Armistice Day. Probably the most productive thing that's going to happen on that day if the pro-Palestine protests are anything to go by. But anyway, without pouring too much scorn on, on what's going to happen this weekend, let's jump into the topics. Okay, well... Um... Callum touched on a topic yesterday, and I thought I'd do a little bit of a different take on it. The, the topic of immigration and mass remigration, repatriation, deportations. I mean, let's cut to the quick, shall we, gentlemen? Our country is full of hundreds of thousands, if not millions, of at best fifth columnists, if not outright enemies of the people and the state. Got no disagreements from me so far. Um, a, a diabolical state of affairs. And uh, recently, the Overton window seems to have moved a tad on that. Uh, Douglas Murray appeared on trigonometry. He didn't really mince his words. Hmm. Um, I know some people, certainly in the so-called distant right, have got a few questions about his <laughs> timing, perhaps some of his paymasters. But nonetheless, I'm happy to see it. I don't care about that necessarily. I'm happy to see it. Anything that moves the Overton window, I wrote an article back in June last year where I said about um, that mass remigration should be inevitable. Uh, the point of the article there is saying um, that we should really, one tactic is just to talk as though it is inevitable. That's one of the things Tony Blair is not the only, not the first person to have done it. It's a tried and tested tactic. Just talk as though something is in fact inevitable. It's quite a powerful gambit to use. He spoke about globalization at Labour Party conference as inevitable as the changing of the seasons. And I think that's very useful framing. It's also very useful framing to look at the way that Douglas has been talking about this, which I think is far more helpful than some of the people on the dissident right that are jumping in front of the bullet um, shot at multiculturalism and excesses saying, but it's just about Israel. No. And it's like, okay. No, no, Douglas Murray is not mincing his words, and he's using a moral depth charge at this, which is very useful. When he says, "I do not want to share my country with Hamas supporters, they should leave. If you are offended by the po missing posters of Jewish children, you should leave." And that is not tribal. That is conditional on whether or not you support the ethos of Britain. That is conditional on whether or not you support our terrorist enemies. And so that is saying, okay, if you are not willing to participate in our civilization and you are declaring your intent to form a Muslim army to annex it to a caliphate, not only should you not be allowed to stage a protest in favor of that, you should not be here because you constitute a threat to our way of life. You don't get to come to a country and fundamentally want to change it. And that's very powerful framing. And I think that's why it's become a very sensible thing to say. Actually, no, we, we shouldn't have to have house guests that want to trash our furniture and track mud in our rug. 
I think that's a very sensible thing to do. To be a bit of a steel man for some members of the DR, I would imagine, and I can't speak for them because I can't read their minds, but I would imagine that the animus is coming from the fact that with the change in rhetoric coming almost entirely on the basis of we need to save Israel, we need to protect Israel, we need to uh, protect those who are aligned with Israel, uh, given that that is the condition that this rhetoric has arrived on, their worry would mo most probably be that if the only time we can ever have control over our borders is for the safety of Israel, then the second all of a sudden something something not in our interest but in Israel's interest comes along, that the uh, winds would change again and go straight back to screwing us over for the sake of a foreign nation in the middle of the, in, in the you know thousands of miles. Okay, here's here's why I think they're they're wrong about that. Mm. Please, your segment. So feel free, feel free to correct me. Um, two reasons: one, you can disaggregate Israel and British Jews. That's that's fine. Yes, at the protest, they're ra ra waving Israeli flags, of course, because it's in response to the massacre on October the seventh. But when they're also being shouted at because they're singing "God Save the King," there is clear animus against the English at whose behest these people are here being being displayed, and we know that because of the Cenotaph protest. Cenotaph has absolutely nothing to do with Israel. But they have stated their intent to disrespect the ceremony anyway, and so I, I, I well, tweet this. That, that's that's just a result of, as Bo was stated at the beginning, importing hundreds yeah. of thousands, if not millions, of fifth column, columnists who, unlike us, like people of our generation, yeah. who weren't properly taught history and weren't taught about the historical conflicts that this country has been involved in, except for World War Two and possibly the Great War as well, um, for Remembrance Day, of course. Um, we they get they know their history they know their historic conflicts and they know that they're coming over to a place that they have had historic conflict with and that they can still see us recognizably as their own enemies they're leeching off of our welfare state uh, for the sake of their own you know uh, material convenience but they still don't like us they don't see us as anything resembling a friend in the mass obviously you'll get exceptions here and there of individuals who genuinely want to assimilate most of them don't. Well, one thing I'd say is that I didn't want to really uh, dwell too long on Douglas Murray particularly, other than that it's just an example of getting the Overton window moved. Hmm. Um, I would, in fact, go further than him. It's not just Hamas supporters or apologists or Islamists. There's all sorts of people with all sorts of thinking in this country that really shouldn't be here, should be re repatriated back to the countries of their forefathers. All sorts of people. For example, I mean, anyone that's a for any foreign national that commits any crime I think that's a should very be, sensible faith there. That's just a reasonable um, standard. Right, yeah. Again, um, why, why should we have house guests that trash the furniture? Anyone with any criminal record in their home country should never be allowed to set foot on, on these islands. It used to be the case, I, I remember being told back in the 60s it would have been, that John Lennon himself, one of the most famous men in the world, had extraordinary trouble even being allowed to visit the US because he had a criminal record. I think he did some, I'm not sure what criminal record he, he had, but it was a minor, it was very minor thing, Lots I believe. of those rock, rock and right, pop yeah, stars in the 60s thing. got put in prison. Uh, but he had to, he had real trouble. And anyway, that's not a bad standard. Um, I mean, my line would be that, well, we essentially have a, a type of open borders, don't we? So all those people that turn up in small boats without correct documentation, um, or even if they've got a, a passport, you don't come across illegally on a small boat like that. All of those people repatriated back to where they come from. Now, it is a little bit difficult, legally speaking, because we're in a bind. We've allowed ourselves legally to get into a bit of a bind. Of course, there's the ECHR, the European Convention on Human Rights, which quite often gets brought up. 
word on the inside is that Rishi's got no intention of repealing that, or you don't even repeal it, you just leave it. Well, the Tory party, uh, the Tory party are very split, even among the new Conservatives group who are pushing for lower legal immigration and the complete elimination of illegal immigration. Um, folks like Danny Kruger actually just want to tear it up because of its contradictions. There are others in there that think, oh, we can just reform it. And I think that's painfully naive. Right, yeah. Well, I mean, the, inner, the inner party of the Tories are too focused on building a Holocaust memorial right next to Parliament right now to worry yeah, about... Because, of course, that was awful. Borders. Yeah, the rock goes very, very deep, though. Um, that reform, Richard Tice, I know he's not everyone's cup of tea, but he has at least said openly and explicitly the Home Office is not fit for purpose. Um, border force, even the CPS, seem to be unfit for purpose. It would require probably a whole new government department staffed by, quote-unquote, true believers who are prepared to actually get people deported. There's a few examples, aren't there, when we've tried to deport people here or there, and um, citizens get involved. There was that woman on a plane. Do you remember that? There was, a, I think, an actual, was he a Jamaican rapist? I can't remember being deported, and she kicked up a stink and got the plane rounded. Oh, this was, this was the thing that, that Diane Abbott supported just, yeah, happening as well. Yeah, one example. There was another example in Scotland. Do you remember I was that thinking when there was yes. Scotland when they were trying to take the migrants out of the house and the entire street rallied around them. Some sort of quite bizarre flash mob suddenly appeared. At Eid. Mm. Mm. Even though, even though um, by the way, those, those illegal criminals were Sikhs. Right, yeah. So, how could you do this at E? Nicola Sturgeon says to a bunch of. I seats. think that is a crime that should be severely punished. Severely punished hmm. uh, for doing that. Um, well, you could classify it as traitorous behavior or obstruction right, of justice. Yeah. That's that's just. I mean, that's not an, an, enough, Nick. I think the punishment is usually quite small for for that. Hmm. I think it should be a, a, quite a long custodial sentence to deter people from ever really dreaming of doing that. Um, there's the idea of chain migration. That's just. I think all new citizenships should be entirely halted, at least for a while, just blank, in a blanket way, at least for a while. Um, student visas. So a few of the lesser polytechnics lose a whole bunch of money because they can't charge foreign people lots of money to study how, at the university. How will all Oxford sorts of survive like without all of those Chinese students? All sorts of things. Like it needs. It needs a root and branch reform, in my opinion. I mean, most people agree with that. It was a poll recently. It was mentioned in the trigonometry episode. You know, sort of 90% of conservative and 70% of Labour voters just agree that uh, the whole system is entirely broken. Um, you know, when border force and the police and, and, well, just the Home Office. When you look at some of the senior civil servants at the Home Office, it's just obvious that uh, they're not working in the public interest in the interests of the public will, W-E-A-L. And that's the first charge of any government, isn't it? Surely, to be working in the interests of the nation and the people. It's simply not doing that. It's a, a first-class dereliction of duty. Well, we know um, from SAGE they were lifelong members of the Communist Party setting pandemic policy, right. as if there weren't ulterior well, motives at um, work there. From what you're talking about, the uh, European Convention on Human Rights, I think another one that makes it difficult to remigrate, specifically the people that come over on the small boats, and people in the comments can correct me if I get a bit of the, a few of the details wrong, but I think one of the other major ones, ironically enough, is the, I think it's the Modern Slavery Act that they have, because it means that I think that you get automatic refugee status and legal protections if you can be classified as having been human trafficked. And of course, the people who are bringing them over on the small boats oftentimes are human traffickers outside of just this being their business. And you can always claim when you get onto the shores 
that, oh, I was human trafficked over here, which immediately puts legal barriers in place of being able to deport them. The other one as well is what Rishi Sunak said he was going to turn around and join if they did leave the ECHR, which is the 1951-52 UN Refugee Convention. And the definition of a refugee encoded in there is anyone unable or unwilling to return to their country of origin. It's kind of like AOC's definition, the Green New Deal, of why you should receive universal basic income. Anyone or unable or unwilling to go to work. Yeah, we should just pay you if you just don't want to don't want to be where you were born. I just feel like having a lie in this morning. Uh, yeah. Give me money. It seems very clear at this point that the very concept of human rights has been weaponized against us. Um, it, I, there's no way to really avoid that conclusion, at least in my mind. Um, there's... <laughs> It's more than, again, I say the, the rock goes deeper than that as well. Um, for example, there's, there's uh, it was in the news a while ago, just one tiny example. Um, have you ever heard of uh, Dr. Halima Begum? Yes, I have. <laughs> She's alternately the first secretary uh, for the, the Department of International Development and the CEO of Runnymede Trust, yeah. involved in all sorts of things. So a revolving door with these types of people. Um, and that's just one tiny example. Um, there seems to be lots and lots, a surprising number of organizations whose entire raison d'etre, entire reason for being is to shift the Overton window in their favor, keep it there and demonize anyone that, that is against that. This is what Doug Stokes um, coined the grievance industrial complex. Right. And there's all sorts of organizations. Um, I've made a small list here just to give some people an idea. So many of these names people out there may have heard of. A lot of them you probably wouldn't have heard of. Um, and they do across the whole spectrum from just trying to demonize people to actively doing things through the courts and all sorts of stuff. And it's, you know, it's the idea of, of, of human rights being weaponized against us. There's organizations like Hope Not Hate, the Running Me Trust, the Institute for Race Relations, Unite Against Fascism, Stand Up to Racism, Institute for Strategic Dialogue, the Tony Blair Institute, Human Rights Watch, Centre for Countering Digital Hate, the Defamation League, Centre for Analysis of the Radical Right, Searchlight, Stand Up to Racism, Refu the Refugee Council, Civil Rights Defenders, Human Rights Without Frontiers, European Centre for Minority Issues, Human Rights Foundation, Frontline Defenders, Human Rights House Foundation, the Open Society, all sorts of things under that, the British Future, Freedom House, Human Rights Watch, International Service for Human Rights, International Society for Human Rights, Commonwealth Human Rights Initiative, Centre for Economic and Social Rights, Minority Rights Group International, The Advocates for Human Rights, it goes on and on and on, Humanity in Action, Protection International, Amnesty International, Care for Calais, it goes on and on and on. There's a surprising number well, of these things. A whole industry, if you like, dedicated, designed to make sure that we can never deport criminals in our midst. You can also um, throw the Socialist Workers Party in there. They're, no, they're always available whenever there is a uh, <clears throat> spontaneous protest with all sorts of outfits and signs and slogans yeah. ready-made. Stand up to racism as well. But, the, but the, the Socialist Workers Party is a bit of an outlier because I just think they're honest. The rest of them, and this is the... <laughs> this is the no, no, no. Right. This is the semantic shift. You think there's that, such a thing as hold a on, hold on, one second. The semantic shift that is engaged in here is what makes normal people who did want to be seen as non-racist cave and act in a cowardly manner that is complicit with the destruction of the country. Because most of those names are non-objectionable names to 
uninitiated ears. And so this is the level of subversion. As you said, they've weaponized the concept of human rights because the particularly the post-war doctrine, this is why the uh, Holocaust memorial is being knocked up in the country that fought against the country that perpetrated it. The whole concept of human rights is being weaponized against the consciences of the people that they are seeking to destroy the country of. So in any other country, this wouldn't fly. These organizations don't exist. But it's just because our nation is compassionate and cares about those things that those non-objectionable names can be used for organizations that want to destroy the place. You're right. It's very deliberately subversive, the names they choose. It's like weaponizing the concept of social justice. On the face of it, if you're not politically aware, you would you might you could be forgiven for thinking, What's wrong with social, social justice? What's wrong with human rights? Mm. Who, who in their right mind would be against human rights? Well, you know, obviously it's the whole thing has been subverted and weaponized. One of the things I'll just quickly say is that I'm happy to take Douglas Murray's help here, mm. despite some objections, uh, because we need, I think in my mind, it's my view, we need any help we can get. There's a vast array of enemies aligned against us here. And if there's a, a mainstream voice, for whatever reason, almost, I'll take it. Um, and so that's mainly what I want to say. I think that's nearly my time up here. But um, Well, I, w- oh. I wanted to say, having, having briefly spoken to Douglas, I can assure you that he is a, he's a friend and a fellow traveler on this issue. So, uh, sure, 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 um, sure. To add my own point on the human rights issues. So with a lot of these organizations, a lot of the time you'll find that they are explicitly globalist and internationalist and oftentimes not staffed or headed by people who are native to the countries that they're exerting influence over. For instance, um, uh, not Searchlight, although I believe Searchlight is also, was that Nick Lowell's along with Hope Not Hate? as uh, He's run both of those or set up both of those, I think. Uh, For instance, British Future is run by, um, I think, a half Indian, half English man. And of course, as with all mixed race people who are leftist activists, you find that there is basically no association or no pride in the British side of the heritage. It's all to do with the Indian. Position yourself entirely as an outsider of the culture who needs to change the culture. And um, the human rights, the UN Convention of Human Rights that came about in the post-World War II period, I would say, was the first example of when they really start to weaponize the concept of human rights against national sovereignty. Because really, what was that? It was a bunch of, let's be perfectly honest, uh, leftist activists within the UN deciding arbitrarily what constitutes a human right and what doesn't in an internationalist sense. So you as a nation can no longer contain, uh, can no longer you know, uh, maintain your own sovereignty. You have to submit to this. And also it just happens that this means that you're unable to do things like properly protect your own borders. There's still a period where you were able to do so, but really with just reaching the inertia of the logic that that, that set off. It was, a chain, it was a domino effect where it just t- tumbles down and now we're living in the, um, in the result that's, of the enshrining um, of those that's a really types of human rights. important point as well, because something Callum's covered a few times before is when the, the UN formulated its definition of human rights, they actually caved to the Soviet delegation who said, well, we don't want total free speech because we want the ability to suppress Nazis, which actually meant just smack down their political opposition for anyone who is an anti-communist and inter- intern them in a, in a camp. So the UN is more than happy to cave to terrorist uh, dictatorial regimes when it suits them and then weaponize the own good consciences of countries like Britain 
and many members of America against them to just flood them with foreign criminals. It's interesting you mentioned the Socialist Workers' Party. I think at least one or two of those I listed were born out of them. Um, uh, but well, we've had the age of mass, mass migration, had the attempt at multiculturalism and globalization. And uh, if their goal was public interest, which it obviously isn't, if it were, um, it's, been, it's been terrible. If their goal was, in fact, always to sort of destroy the very fabric of our society, then it's been spectacularly successful. I think we need now to move into the age of re-migration. And I would uh, suggest to anyone out there, just start, if you're on our side, so to speak, just start speaking as though it's an inevitability. Um, that is quite a powerful tool, I think. That it, it, sort of, it has to happen. It will happen. Um, and it sort of becomes a self perpetuating prophecy, hopefully. Um, well, we've not really got much to lose by doing that. If you'd rather Britain look like elsewhere, I'm more than happy to help you live elsewhere. Because <laughs> I, I haven't got anywhere else to go. I've just got Britain. And I'd like Britain to stay the way it is, actually. Well, well would, you've got Ireland. <laughs> I would like to see a whole new government department um, stuffed by people that want to see things reversed uh, in charge of uh, repatriation remigration and making sure our borders actually function because without borders you don't really have a country the very rule of law itself is undermined to the point of becoming absurd um so we're in a difficult situation it really is uh but you know never give up hope anything could uh anything could happen fantastic can i nick your mouse we're, we're, we're rationed on tech here at the lotus ears uh how do i close it oh shite oh Barga, you okay yep i'm all right what happened there but that's fine you might want to grab some tissue uh, we... can somebody bring me some tissue please thank you one for the blooper reel there yeah, yeah there, there we go, go. hello Lotusy <laughs> is out of context I think, that's fantastic I, I think what happened there was that a ghost got me right that's the only explanation somebody stepped on my grave and uh, I had a just as just as Peter Hitchens has been haunted by the ghost of Enoch Powell all week, you've been haunted oh, no, by the ghost not, of what members of the Fabian let's Society. Not talk about Peter Hitchens. We are live. Enoch we are live. These things happen when you're live. Yeah, yeah. it's okay. Thank you very much. I'll 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 I'll, I'll kick off once Harry is not in immense discomfort. Are you are you sure no, you're right with your hand? Yeah, no, it's absolutely fine. It wasn't scalding hot or anything. My hand's perfectly fine. Okay, no, 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 it's been, and it's been calloused enough from guitar and gym, so that it's perfectly fine. Oh, at least they're manly activities. There you go. It's going to look really confusing for the YouTube audience when it cuts to this segment, isn't it? Oh, well, that's all right. Harry had a boo-boo. Yep. Okay, fantastic. On to my bit then, I suppose. Well, on Monday night, there was a Centre for Social Justice event. Now, for anyone whose eyebrows are raised, the think tank was set up by Ian Duncan Smith, so former head of the Conservative Party. Yeah. So they don't mean social justice in the way that it's been captured, but obviously the name is now radioactive. But but point being, the intention... <laughs> well, they didn't at the time. Are you, are you telling me to trust the social intentions of a former, former Tory member? I'm saying that he's a well-intentioned boomer that doesn't understand what's happening. This does not fill me with... The hope. quiet man of politics. Do you remember that when he... Gave himself that moniker. <laughs> Not great. Very no. cringeworthy. But anyway, look, the point is the event that was on was actually pretty good. And the reason I say that is because some friends of the show were participating in it. So Miriam Cates was spearheading it. Fantastic MP, about one of the only good ones left in the Tory party at this point. 
Rosie Duffield was meant to be on it, who is not a friend. Um, she was former MP at Canterbury, who decided to dogpile on our student society for inviting Cole back in 2018, and has since been devoured by the crocodile of her own party over gender ideology, to the point of where she couldn't show up to the event because she was afraid for her safety. Now, I will Crying say... Shame. Crying shame. Yeah, she shouldn't be hounded off of this. Not not very nice thing to do, but also don't feed the beast if that's the, if that's the case for it. Um, then there was also uh, Philip Pilkington, who has worked for ARC and has done a paper on demographics we'll be mentioning later. He'll be coming in to be interviewed. And the wonderful Stephen Shaw, who I've spoken to on our website in the following interview on the pandemic of unplanned childlessness because of his film Birth Gap. And the whole point of the event was to discuss demographic decline in various countries. This is specific to England, though Stephen Shaw went around the world and said pretty much every country except for Israel at this point is having declining birth rates. Israel has about 2.5 because it has... Um, religious and ethnic-specific migration policies, and a stable economy, so it's actually encouraging religious minorities globally to have children in its country. But the rest of the world is below sub-replacement, which is 2.1 babies per woman. India's just dipped below that. Sub-Saharan Africa is above replacement birth rate, but every single decade they're losing at least one child. So trying to import the whole third world to make up for your falling birth rates not only has problems with the economy and problems with culture and, and ethnic tensions, but it also isn't going to work long term. All of these things are very sensible policies and discussion topics. For some reason, we haven't been able to talk about that for the last how many years because, oh my God, you're racist if you notice that your essentially native population is going extinct because you're not having babies. Very frustrating. But it's good that it's being had as a discussion now in the building adjacent to Parliament, which is which is Portcullis House. Now, Shaw wrote a piece about this a little while ago for the for the Spectator. I'm just going to put some numbers in context here because the the situation's pretty dire. He's worked out that by 2050, 800 million people are going to suffer from unplanned childlessness. That basically means that it's people who had wanted to have families but didn't find the time. The economic circumstances went against them. They didn't have a partner. And, and various factors had pushed them away from meeting someone. And about 80% of those people um, who don't have children by that time wanted them. Only 10% had suffered from fertility issues. 10% didn't want them because of climate change or whatever, right? And so he worked out the numbers for each country. The UK last year had 900,000 adults celebrate their 50th birthday and only 700,000 births. So that's a 23% birth gap. So it's the first time that's, that's happened, I believe, of where the number of pensioners had eclipsed the number of newborns obviously driven in part by the pandemic and lockdowns, but economic instances often, often have a knock-on effect. US has a 15% gap, France 24%, Germany 35%, Spain and Japan both 55%. I think Japan's one of the worst birth rates in the world. I think it's 115th out of 127. It's like 1.2 children per woman at this point. I just quickly check, that's very interesting, isn't it? Because it, that suggests to me that it's something to do with um, development rather than necessarily Western culture, hmm. right? Yes. I, yeah, seemingly so. It's so, not just Western culture. It's no. something about being having a high standard of living and or developed society or something. Yeah, well, lower infant mortality means that if your children are alive for longer, you're trying for less children because you have to support them. There's also the implication that the birth control pill has done this to the West. Now, that's not the case in Japan because Japan didn't adopt the pill until 1990. and uh, in the moment in Japan, only 3% of women are on the pill at all. Um, but around the same time in the 70s, there was an oil shock that hit South Korea, Italy, Germany, and Japan, and all their birth rates went off cliff, and they've never recovered since. So adverse economic circumstances are also part of it. Does Japan not also have a surplus of men in comparison to the amount of women it has? 
um, as far as I'm aware. I'm not sure about the exact population of that, but I do know that uh, the Hikakomori are a growing constituency of men. So there are many men taking themselves out of the dating pool entirely. So also cultural phenomenons at work here. Um, South Korea's got 71% birth gap. I think that's the worst in the world at this point. Um, I think there are more dog owners than there are parents in South Korea. Bloody hell. Yeah. So that's really bad. Interestingly enough, the reason isn't fewer children, as in per family. It's fewer people having children overall. So if you have a child, your likelihood of having more children is much higher. But it's just people are never having any children in the first place that's going up. Could you argue that there is a, um, given the selective pressures right now for the sorts of people who would choose to have families as opposed to those who would choose not to have families by choice, not necessarily because they've been put into circumstances where they can't financially or can't because they can't find a part. Could you argue that there is a soft eugenics process going on? Not to, you know, qualify that positively or negatively. <coughs> I don't... Just to state that it appears, because uh, I know that um, Ed Dutton, who was at the ARC mm. conference that you were at last week, was taught, has written a book about the potential conservative future purely because of the fact that it's more conservative-minded minded people who are having more children as opposed to liberally-minded people. Eric, Eric Kaufman's done two books about this. I'm, I'm talking to him uh, tomorrow, actually. And he's done The Religious Will Inherit the Earth. As we've already seen with Israel, um, Orthodox Jews are having children at rates higher than other sectors of, of Jews. But all religious Jews in that country have a higher birth rate than pretty much everywhere else. Same with the Amish in America, same with Catholics in, in the general diaspora. So yes, it is trending towards conservative birth rates as well, because for some reason, um, liberal and woke-minded people have, well, many reasons, made abortion and um, cosmetic sterilization YouTube a sacrament for well, themselves. The, the, I was about to mention there is also the... Uh, the um ideological demographics of abortion. The, the, the issue is, though, is that of the people that aren't having these children, the overwhelming majority of them are reporting that they want them or would have liked them. It's only about 10% of the people that don't end up having kids have, have no kids for ideological reasons. So what's happening here is a vast majority of people are just not having the families that they've always wanted to have due various life circumstances and reasons. It might be the cultural narrative, it might be economic circumstances, it might be their inability to find a partner, it might be delaying their fertile years because of education, but a sort of conflagration of issues are converging on this generation and stopping them having kids. And it's not just in Britain, it's around the world, but obviously this event was, was mainly focused on Britain. There's a little passage here about Britain. The number of childless people in the UK has grown to one in four over the past five decades, yet the number of children that mothers are having has increased slightly from 2.3 in the 70s to 2.4 today. In Japan, the figure for childlessness is one in three, yet 6% of mothers are having four or more children, exactly the same as in 1973. In Italy, two in five women are childless, while the average mother is having 2.2. US, childless women is trending towards one in three, but the average mother is having 2.6 children, up from 2.4 in the 70s. This confirms the idea that we're moving towards smaller families is a myth. Childlessness alone has driven our overall birth rates to ultra-low levels. And this isn't something that people are discussing. And, and so Miriam Cates, ahead of the event, decided to do a bit of polling on what women actually want. Do they want these children or not? Are they all sacrificing their families for the climate, as Greta Thunberg keeps telling them? And she says, exclusive polling commission for the, for the event shows that 92% of young women want children and that the average number of children desired is 2.4, so above birth rate. In other words, if women were able to have the number of children they actually wanted, we wouldn't have a problem a problem which the establishment seems to think mass migration is the only solution to. 
So, various factors are converging on this generation to not have the families that they want in order to manufacture consent for battery farming Africans into infinity. And that's not particularly desirable for multiple, multiple reasons, as we've mentioned time and time again on this podcast. If you want to look at the, the rest of the stats, they have been published in full on the new Social Covenant unit. Thanks very much to Imogen for that. It says 92.4% of young women hope to become mothers. When asked how many children they'd like to have once barriers are removed, 18 to 24-year-olds wanting 2.25 and 25 to 35-year-olds want 2.41. Of those not wanting or unsure about having children in the future, 44% cited needing to feel as though they could afford enough childcare, 41% wanting to move into a first or larger home, and 41% said they want to become less economically vulnerable. So even of the people who are saying, I don't want kids yet, those factors are all conditional on I don't feel I could have them. So again, lots of people want them, various reasons as why they're not having them. And so what's this leading to? Bit of a scary statistic that came out of an ARC report from Philip Pilkington, who sat on this panel, and we'll get to Philip in a moment, because uh, noticing demographic trends is apparently enough to be shouted at. <sighs> Many such cases. He discovered in this paper that we'll be discussing on the channel soon that if current demographic and birth rate trends continue, the UK in 2083 will be 54% first-generation immigrant. First generation. Not just the children who may not feel connected to the area. First generation. So people that have come over as economic chances have been invited over because we haven't been able to fill apparently all, the, all these job vacancies that keep cropping up as you've covered before are many, many oftentimes ghost jobs as well. Oh yeah, a lot of them are managers trying to put out the feelers to their own staff members saying, don't worry, I know you're overworked, but we've got jobs coming in, we'll have new people started, and they never actually take anyone on, or they're mandated from their own uh, upper departments to put them out there, or to just have, say like call centers, a lot of call centers will have perpetual job offers, even if all of the positions are filled because they have such a high rate of turnover. But every single one of these will be classified in ONS data as a job vacancy that needs to be filled, which is why you can just one of the reasons why you can justify mass migration, even though these jobs don't exist or will never be filled or were never meant to be filled. And it's total false assumption that suddenly by arriving on British soil, they're going to be transplanted into fully patriotic and integrated British citizens because people hold cultural prejudices. Soil's magic, bro. Oh yeah, if you just give someone a passport, they're they're instantly going to be waving the Union Jack, I'm sure. Makes sense to me. It's 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 genuinely a cultural extinction event to say that the majority of your population only arrived here yesterday. And that is not a prejudicial or racist statement, and I'm tired of people saying that it is. The problem is that people within the conservative camp say it is. Now, this should surprise no one, because of course there have always been Tory wets acting as containment. There are even a few that tried to infiltrate ARC, which was frustrating, but it seems at least with stuff like this, it's going to be trending in this direction in future. And so I wanted to reference the event. Now, it's in full and it's live streamed on the Center for Social Justice's Twitter accounts. So you can go and, and watch it back if you like. I apologize that the volume is not great. We've done our best to clean some of it up, but there was a Q&A session. And the event was chaired by Fraser Nelson. If anyone doesn't know him, he is one of the lead editors over at The Spectator. Now, Fraser is often invited to these sorts of panel events. He chaired Miriam's event talking about the online harms bill at a Conservative Party conference. So he's quite a high-profile journalist. When Philip was talking about the findings of his report, in a very scientific, explanative way, I don't think there were really any value judgments laden in what he said. 
Just noticing the fact that Britain would be majority immigrant was enough to warrant shouting him down. Um, I'm going to play a couple of clips. One of them's quite long, uh, so I can pause it at any point if requested. Just because I thought I'd raise your blood pressure, boys. So, so let's see if we can if we can listen to this. I've got a question that we were looking at before, um, no, I thought it was very striking presentation. Um, but I, I come from this for um, normally at CSJ events, I include most of the panelists tonight, not particularly. So I'll get my questions out of the way. But Philip, you're presenting that immigrants as a shared population, almost like some kind of threat. Now, this is what I can't understand. I mean, we are living, take this one city about London. You've got 60% of the children in the city are born to an immigrant mother. As far as I can work out, then this is one of the most successful melting pots in the world. <coughs> What's to worry about? Where's the danger? Well, you just said 60% are born to immigrant mothers, not that 60%. Well, about a third of the market, probably a bit more than that, are immigrant mothers. So, I mean, what's this last of my check? This is a pretty well functioning city. London seems to be fairly well functioning. Currently, so what's to worry about? Well, I mean, it's up to people. Look, we're we're showing a trade If the country is comfortable with fifty percent of the population being foreign-born, potentially speaking different languages and so on. Oh, sorry, sorry. They don't, they don't speak English when they come here, though. You know? Well, wherever wherever the the is coming from. I mean, well, we know where they're coming from. This is we've got it. But we're right now in Nigeria, that's number one source of immigrants there. They speak pretty good English, they're integrating very, very well. The second language after English is Polish, as far as I can work out, is no integration problems there. I don't think so. I mean, the, 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 one of the biggest political issues right now is immigration across Europe. Various uh, political forces are rising up, complaining about immigration rates. The one thing I'd say is, okay, from an integration there's only really been one experiment, long-term experiment in integration, right? And not a kind of frontier economy like Australia or something like that. It's the United States. It's the United States, 1870, right? And they have a big wave of Irish, Italian, Polish migration, and they integrate successfully. What was the largest share of the population that they took on? It was about 15%. That's the current uh, uh, rate in Britain overall on one. If we say, okay, we're going to triple that, which is basically what we're saying, we're saying we're going to triple that. Wait, Just, wait, are, are we saying that? Well, if we want to achieve the economic growth and the stability. Well, that's two pretty big ifs, right? And as you, and I'd love to know the error margin in that graph of yours, because let's face it, we all know uh, about economic models that you won't do it. You're still in fact that you're imagining there. So you're showing this graph saying we're going to be 50% of the words, half the people born here is pretty hard to run a society on that. Thesis. What's it about? It's experimental. Sorry, but where is your grants? Look at Australia, where 50% of the country immigrants are speaking. That's a tremendous success. In a frontier economy, it's never been tried. So, what are the ecosystem differences? Well, why wouldn't it? Well, we have increasingly, steadily increased support of immigrants in this country. We have become greater as a result of the Hindu Prime Minister, a Buddhist Home Secretary, a Muslim Mayor of London, the Muslim First Minister of Scotland. As far as I can work out, this makes us a pretty damaged country. Not It will if you take into account if you take simple assumptions, and by the way, they aren't complex assumptions. 
Economic models require complex assumptions. Demographic models would that. It's just the number of people. It's the number of births, it's the actual rate versus the number of immigrants. It's a very simple I'm right. going to be perfectly honest. I could barely tell yeah. a word of what they were saying. So apologies if you, that apologies if the audio is for some reason not not excellent. Is him in the middle, Fraser Nelson? Yes. And him on the left is Philip Pilkington. Yes. Okay. So the summary well, from, was from, from body language, I got a bad vibe. Yeah. Philip from, was um, Philip was genuinely un uncomfortable, and and he actually said to me after the event, um, I felt kind of bad having to pull the well, I'm actually an immigrant card because I shouldn't have been put in that position. And so Fraser was turning around and saying, well, if you look outside at London, we seem to be functioning rather well. We have a Hindu prime minister. We have a Buddhist home secretary. We have a Muslim mayor of London, a Muslim first minister of Scotland. The United Kingdom seems to be operating perfectly well, doesn't it? I would suggest that Fraser maybe not get cabs everywhere and step outside on the actual streets or to some of the Areas of London, which are nearly entirely or are entirely um, super diverse minorities, and see how well they're functioning socially. His name was David Amos. Yes. Yeah. Her name was Emily Jones. Uh, yeah, what a, an obscene wretch. Yeah, screw him. From what I from what I could tell, just from the body language, there was obviously some power dynamics going on there, and it seems that Fraser was almost entirely trying to format format his questions into get uh, well. One, he was positioning himself in a rather smug uh, sense with a unearned sense of moral superiority, uh, because it seemed that what he was trying to do was fish out an answer to the "Why have you got a problem with that, bro?" What's the problem? Everybody's the same, bro. What's the problem? And get the, well, actually, group behavior affects a lot of things, and different groups behave in different ways, which is the honest truth of it, and I don't think there should be any shame in admitting it, but he was trying to fish that answer from Philip because then he has a blanket to just say, oh, you're racist then. Hmm. Oh, you think that group behavior has effects on outcomes and has an effect of people, individuals' behavior? What do you mean? We're all individuals. Because what you say about the idea that even pointing out that there is demographic change going on means you can be labeled a racist. From what I can tell from my own analysis, the overriding assumption seems to be that if you as a British person, if you as a person with European ancestry who can be broadly classified as white, recognize yourself as a member of a group rather than just an unsituated individual out in a globalized world, well, then you are racist because if you are white recognizing yourself as part of a group, these people conceptualize as the first step to fascism, which they see as the first step to genocide. Realistically speaking, it all leads back, and this is why they want a Holocaust memorial outside of the parliament of the UK, is because they see any sort of white group identity, even if that doesn't affect your individual actions, even if it just means that you recognize that I am part of a group and because, and it's more and more difficult not to see yourself as part of a group when we have other groups imported into the country who see themselves as group and situate themselves directly oppositional to our interests because they're pushing for more welfare, pushing for more open borders, pushing for all sorts of things that cause us detriment. They say, well, if you see yourself as a group, you're a Nazi. Yeah, That's and, what it all comes down to. And, and, and Eric Hoffman has done work on this saying, okay, do you know what really makes things volatile and escalate to violence? Is if you gaslight people into saying, 
Some people's psychological proclivity to see themselves as part of an ethnic group doesn't exist only for white people when it does exist for other ethnicities, because you are clearly being dishonest and using it as an instrument to destroy the country. Now, me personally, I don't have a white identity. I'm just an Englishman, right? I, I, love, I love my culture. I love the place that I come from. My skin color is subordinate to the, the place and time and, and beliefs that I have grown up with. And I don't want to see those go extinct. Because, funnily enough, if you flood the country full of people that don't have the same culture as me, premised in the idea of multiculturalism, and they do not assimilate, not nearly as successfully as Fraser Nelson seems to somehow believe that they are, then yeah, my culture will be driven to extinction. And I don't want that. I wasn't asked if I wanted that. It's not. This is something that, that, that actually... Well, he's, he's a man who fundamentally is out for his own interests and not the interests of our nation. Hmm. That's what it comes across as. He's a traitor. And, and so he turns around and says, okay, well, well, why can't you just adapt to the fact that your culture is going to be liquidated? Why can't we have, right? Couldn't our national story just be Britain becoming this new multicultural thing? He's asking Britons to accept the changing of their national well, story. It's not Britain. Try telling him that. I'm just going to play this and I'll summarize if the, if the audio is not great again. Okay, and one final question if you were in front of the floor. This whole discussion, by the way, I didn't even answer it, I'm interested in it. I mean, you, you talk about immigration as basically being a function of um, the depletion of the number of working working age. I understand that. And right now we've got, I forget the figure for immigration to Britain, is about one close one million a year or something like that. And that is obviously a very big figure by our standards. But, and this is broadly speaking twice as many as the world before Brexit, so that is a quite a big, perhaps unexpected consequence of being in the EU. This is happening, as far as I can work out, not because there aren't enough British people, sorry, British born people in the country. This is happening because right now we have a welfare system paying 5.3 million people not to work. That we are, there's a system, as far as I can work out, the gap, the vacuum sucking in migrant workers. The reason we have a worker shortage in this crisis is because right now the welfare system is dramatically <coughs> tried to solve 14 years ago. Where you've got like 20%, sometimes more, of our great cities, one out of work benefits in the middle of a working shortage crisis. And that, rather than any interest issue, is why why it becomes a community. Well, I, I'm sure that's part of the reason is that we have so many unaccounted benefits. But if you just look at the birth gap that we have, what, what's 75% in this country, there literally are 35% fewer babies being born than there are 50 year olds uh, at the moment. So there is, there is. Unarguably, a mathematical shortage of people entering the labour market. You can plug that gap with immigration, or you can design yourself to economic stagnation. That's the model. And I think on, on the immigration point, you know, we you don't know, import immigrants as babies, we import them as adults, and immigrants grow up too, and then, then we need more immigrants to feed the workforce in order to provide. And I think, you know, I'll probably take a different view to you on immigration. I do think it's more about immigration, it's very, very positive for an economy. But there's no democratic consent for the kind of immigration we have right now. I mean, that's very clear from the poll. So the idea that we've increased that massively to the point where half the people aren't born in this country, nothing to do with being anti-immigrant or racist. It's about saying, where does our national cohesion come from? Where does our national story come from? If one in two people wasn't born here. And I just don't think there's democratic, democratic consent for that. And therefore, if we're not going to go down that model, we're going to look at a different model, which is how to get more children and how do we and is it plausible that our national story becomes one similar as the United States and Australia, that we are in Britain, the original multi-ethnic state, that we are a country which successfully combines various races and cultures, 
better than anywhere else. Mm -hmm. But even America, as, as Philip said, the maximum number of the percentage of first generation students they've ever had is 15 percent. So you're still talking more than three times that level, which, as Philip said, is an experiment. Why are we commanded to pretend that if we triple the most amount of immigration that America has ever seen in a landmass smaller than one of its states, that there's going to be no problems? That's just my deep and abiding frustration. Why, why are we commanded to pretend that there aren't going to be any cultural abrasions? I mean, why does, uh, why does he pretend? Why does this Fraser gentleman, uh, which I think is po possibly an unknown term I've given him there, but why, why, why does he pretend that there isn't a tipping point? That there isn't clearly a tipping point when demographics hit a certain point, and reasonably, it seems to be when you have about 40% of an area becoming an out-group and 60% the in-group, when all of a sudden they have a certain numbers advantage, especially when the in-group sees themselves as a, an unsituated, completely atomized group of individuals rather than a cohesive unit, these people see themselves as more of a cohesive unit. Why does he not see that that will inevitably lead to negative consequences? The, the culture of an area is always, always determined by the culture of the majority of the people who live there. They don't have to assimilate. He pretends that they're assimilating. Most of them aren't. Are we going to pretend that London is the same city it was 40 years ago? I suspect he does see and doesn't care. I think he uh, probably just doesn't interact with these people at all. Uh, I, I suspect he's, ju he's just what exactly what he seems to be, um, a, a traitor scumbag. He doesn't, <laughs> hasn't got the interests of us at heart at all. Like, I heard him say, so who's paying him to say something like that? Surely it can't be his actual genuine opinion. Or what if Britain just becomes a melting pot of nothing? Well, actually... Wait, sorry, what, what I, I think are you talking about? The last of the three clips, which is short, I think it does actually prove that he is painfully naive like he's he's staggeringly unintelligent on this issue the re re reason is he genuinely says well who's saying that we need to fix this birth gap with migration who's suggesting this it's like, what's your whole argument based on but the bloody treasury green book says we need to set migration at this exact amount of people in order to keep economics at the same level so it's premised on the idea that if we want to continue the line to go up, we've got to pull in this many people from around the world, particularly the third world after Brexit. Now, this is what all the NGOs decide to cite. And he's saying that, anyway, I'll let him, I last am, time I'll let him speak. I am just loathed to let, let these people off the hook by saying it's naivete or something. I, she, these people are actually, you know, quite clever in a sense, well-read, intelligent people. Right? And, and, uh, sometimes. And, <laughs> and he is, is he the chief editor? I believe he's the lead editor. Yeah, well. he's he's the lead editor of a very important news newspaper. So is Andrew Neil. Britain. Yeah. Andrew Neil's not that bright. You're going to be savvy. You're not going to be like just completely ignorant of the argument. You've got I to don't know. Be this... Smart enough to be conniving no, to but... get to the sort of position that he's in. The question he asks right here is basically: if you were trying to be conniving and do optics to do containment, you wouldn't ask this question because you look bloody stupid. By, mm. by a 19-year-old in the audience selective, that turns around and gives you... Selective ignorance is more effective than some people give it credit. Well, I'll, I'll play this because I think this is probably just sums up how insulated he is and how disastrous that is. Is there anybody who genuinely says immigration is the solution for a declining birth rate? Yeah. 
No, wait, wait, wait. There was one thing that, so for example, I, I, I've missed this. I've missed this person. Who says this? Um, lots of people on Twitter. Is it? Oh, okay. <laughs> okay. <laughs> okay. <laughs> the problem that they can find out. In the review of my, my last book, Tomorrow's People reviewed at the time, that was exactly the point David the Royal Why are we worrying about birth rate when we can just ship the name? Right. So, Adam Smith, you, lots of people make it. You were. Can I just add to this? It's very much so in the business class's interest to get immigrants in because it's a short term fix. All they care about is the next year, two years, three years later, four summers. They don't care about one, two years down the line because they're in this other thing. I'm going to, uh, I'm going to try and. Um, give my perspective on what he was trying to do. He was trying to do what Morgoth calls playing the hatchling, which is mm. the selective mm -hmm. ignorance. I have only just emerged into the world. You're going to have to explain everything to me. It's a very effective debate tactic if you assume two things. One, the audience is on your side. And two, that the person that you're debating with doesn't actually know what they're talking about because Possibly. it puts all of the impetus on them to explain their position. Oh, I don't know a thing that you're talking about, even though you do, but it means that you have to explain it all. And if I catch that you aren't as well read on the subject as you say that you are, then I can immediately claim to have won the debate because, ha, you're an idiot. It means you don't have to be in the position where you explain a single thing about your own position or why you believe what you believe. He was unfortunate enough in this position to be caught out by an audience who did know what they were talking about and weren't entirely on his side. So what does Morgoth call it? Playing the hatchling. That's very good. I like that. It's, yeah. quite, it's quite a good, quite a good turn yeah. of phrase. Yeah, so good. I'll just finish on some new numbers that have come out from Migration Watch. They were under embargo until today, which is quite fortunate that we, we get this. Um, if we keep these migration numbers up, not only as they released before, will we by 2046 need 18 new cities the size of Birmingham to accommodate the housing, we would need 6,675 new schools, 165 further education colleges, 75 universities, and that's assuming that the migrants have the same number of children they do, even though that keeps dropping off, so you'd need more migrants, 2,640 GP surgeries, 135 hospitals, 7,785 new roads, where? 2,235 bus lanes, and that's on migration alone, because as the ONS has said, our population would not be increasing unless it were for migration. How the hell are we going to facilitate all that? And why should we? Why are we entitled to roll out the infrastructure red carpet for a bunch of people who are chances who hate us? Can anyone answer me this? Perhaps Fraser has an answer for this. But not only that, and I thought I'd finish on something maybe a bit bitterly funny. Um, go back to Miriam's point and Stephen's point. It's not just a case of national demographics. It's a case of, actually, there are people that really want families. There are people that, after 40, say that I feel really bereaved because I wanted kids and I've never had them yet. And so Lots of women who've been let down by freezing their eggs and it's been unsuccessful or failed IVF treatments. Lots of them end up with heartbreak. Yeah, and that was discussed in this. So we actually need early interventions to ensure that we don't have an entire generation of people that are heartbroken because they never had the children they wanted. So you're doing a disservice to them by not being honest about that. And journalists, in case you didn't hate them enough, um, Miriam, uh, my friend originally tweeted this out and I think Miriam nicked it. So I'll, I'll, I'll call you out on that. Um, a journalist by the name of Alice Thompson in the Times. In 2017, she wrote the article, Women of Britain, You Must Have More Babies. A falling birth rate is bad news for the economy, but serious financial and career incentives are required to correct it. Perfectly reasonable take. As of last week, no thanks, we women won't breed for Britain. Miriam Cates wants us to have more babies, it's not so easy, says Alice Thompson. Wonder what changed. Wonder if personal circumstances might have uh, increased the vitriol from this woman's article. 
And that seems to be the thing. It seems that personal circumstances, Fraser Nelson saying, what makes me uncomfortable about this conversation? This woman, I don't know her personal life choices, but I would assume things didn't maybe work out how she wanted, saying within six years, no, having babies is bad and I shouldn't feel culturally pressured to do so. The insecurities and bad consciences of some people are stifling a necessary debate and making it so that we are entering a demographic disaster and bereaving an entire generation of the families they actually want. I think that's fundamentally cruel and you should stop being cowards and we should have this conversation. All right. And uh, I've not spilt coffee this time. Smooth. Do you want the Elgato? Uh, yeah, yeah, go on. Cheers. There you go, mate. All right. On to my last segment. And this one should be a, a bit more lighthearted, probably, for the, for the most part, uh, because you gentlemen have heard of Mr. Beast, correct? He's like a philanthropic YouTuber, isn't he? Yes. Isn't he? The I don't one... know how he made his massive fortune that he uses to fund all of the ridiculous things that he does. Uh, I'm aware of him because he's one of the biggest YouTubers, right? But yeah. I don't think I've ever watched a no. single second of his content ever. The only thing... I have watched one or two, and what one. Does he, what does he actually do? Sorry, real quick. What, uh, he tends to do big gimmick vim videos where he'll say like. I've got five people on a desert island and the one to last until the end of this designated amount of time, I'm going to give a Bugatti Veyron to or I'm going to give you 500,000 pounds. If you do this, I'll give you loads of money. If you do that, I'll give you loads of money. Oftentimes, he'll go off and do something that is, as you mentioned, very philanthropic. And overall, he seems to be, he's a bit of a normie. One of the people as part of his production team came out as um. I was going to uh, ask um, if that was, if, if, if one of his producers is a, is a woman now and has always been. Yes, has always been, and in pursuit of that thing that he, uh, she always was, it always was, uh, abandoned the family, uh, of, of course. Right, stunning uh, and brave, yep. Yeah, st stunning and brave. So he's got very normy proclivities. It's fairly inoffensive, right? It's kind yeah, of family, child-friendly stuff, I guess. Very child-friendly. Right? Right. I don't know how he made all of his money because he's... Uh, about 25 years old and he's got a net worth of somewhere between 100 and 500 million dollars but that's why he's able to fund everything that he does mm. and he's in trouble again because he keeps getting in trouble because he keeps doing nice things like this from a few months ago like almost a year ago at this point where he decided that I'm going to go out and try and cure the blind I'm going to give pay for people's blind people's treatment for some kind of uh, specialist experimental surgery that's going to give them the sight back. And loads of people, lots of commies got angry about it, saying that it was ableist. Yeah. And then I think a week or two after, he came out with a video where he said, I did the same thing for deaf people. I gave them all cochlear implants. And I don't know, I think that also got him labeled as ableist at the same time. Very strange that he's doing very nice things for what people. possible angle is there to criticize that i am a nihilistic worm with no nothing going on in my own life and i have to gin up some kind of meaning in my life somehow and i've taken on other people's misfortune as my own so that have i can some have of, some feeling in my life there must be some reason logical or so, also be, also it's however because flawed there must be some there, argument there is an there's a bit of an insulting aspect of it to communists, which is that this is a philanthropic individual using his own money to do this, whereas they believe that he should give it all to the state so that they can inefficiently allocate it to various sources that they prefer, where nothing can get done, but they can say, big daddy state is doing this, therefore I'm a good person. That's part of the logic. And don't, 
I say logic. There is no logic okay. to it. These people are spiteful mutants. And Just dirty, pure praxis. Merchants. Uh, all they care about is their ideological commitment to the state and nothing else. They think that the state will do nice things. So when they see an individual do nice things, it, 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 it like fries their brain. They're, they're, it, it short wires them, wow. short circuits them. That's a hard argument to make, isn't it? Someone wants to cure blind people out of the goodness of his heart with his own money, and you make it about capitalism or something. But it's, Hassan will make it. I think. Yeah, that's, I think. I think they also go. Oh well, he only did it for his YouTube video. Okay. Well, even if he did. So what? Who cares? He did something good. He's making. He back only the, cured cancer for YouTube. He's making back the cost on ad revenue to then go and do it again. Like, yeah, I, I know. It's, it's an incredible argument. And uh, before I go into the most recent controversy, uh, the website has lots of excellent videos on it. So here's, this is our, this is your philanthropy to us, to support us for all of the good things that we do for you, including making incredibly informative and entertaining videos like this recent contemplations that I was part of with Connor when we had a, a special guest on, Proper Horror Show, talking about the psychology of horror films and particular horror films that we would recommend. While we've got you here, Bo, any horror that you'd like to recommend the audience? Uh, specifically horror films? Yeah, and while, while we're on the subject. Oh, God, I don't know. It's not really my favourite thing particularly. Nosferatu. Uh, yeah, <laughs> do a good impression. Um, oh, yeah, actually, you joke. The original Nosferatu yeah. film is actually really, is, is remaking it. It's quite it, scary. It's Robert um, Eggers is remaking it. Isn't Robert Eggers. Uh, I was not looking forward to the remake until I saw it was Robert Eggers, and now I've got hope for it. But the original has a very creepy atmosphere that you can't really capture anymore from those early silent films. One thing I will say, though, while we're on the topic of the website and things, just to reiterate what you said right at the top of the show, is that usually Contemplation comes out on Saturday and Epochs is Sunday. This week we're flipping it round. So if you're a massive Epochs fan, and I know as you should be, and I know there's legions of you out there, it'll be Saturday this week for a one time only because of it's the 11th of the 11th, and I've got an Armistice Day thing with Godfrey Bloom. So. And it's free, so all go and watch it. Oh, and the whole thing's yeah. free this week as well. Yeah. That one's free, but if you'd like to access these kinds of videos, like Josh's Contemplation series, it is premium, so you do have to put it chip in. It's a five pounds a month, or we have the single purchase option now where you can buy a single video if you don't feel like subscribing to the website uh, as, a, as a, a full entity. So there you go. But back onto the news. So Mr. Beast did something really nice. Again, he keeps doing this, uh, where he went to Africa and built 100 wells. Right. Do, do either of you have any concerns with this or anything negative to say about this? No, it's what Akon was doing for ages, and he got loads of praise for it. So I have no I'm, idea who Akon is. Uh, the singer, the guy that did Lonely, you know, the black dude. <laughs> you did what? The, the song Lonely, you know, the auto-tuned one. Lonely, I'm Mr. Lo no? Oh, no, I've not heard Okay, that. right, the early 2000s singer, anyway. Uh, he went and did, he put up pylons in Africa and because he was like, oh, okay, well, my ancestors are black, so I may as well go and spend the money that I've earned helping out a country that's left behind. And he got loads of praise for it. So I'm going to assume that because Mr. Beast is white... That might have a little bit to do with right, it. Right, okay. That might have, so to explain... It's a charity called Water Aid, isn't there? I think, then. well, obviously, that's what it says on the tin, but uh, it's difficult to have any sort of moral objection mm -hmm. against it, isn't it, really? But are you but a you're, mad communist? You'll be, <laughs> you'll be impressed at the strain that some have gone to to try and object to this. So I'll just give a rundown of what he did. So he went across... Kenya, Zimbabwe, otherwise known as properly Rhodesia, um, Uganda, Somalia, and Cameroon. And he didn't just do wells because he had this big machine that he was bringing along with him that drills down. It's a bore. 
borehole or something machine that goes down into water uh, water reserves that are deep, deep, deep underground. So it's instantly drinkable water that was available to all of those these people. It was really efficient. It only took about a minute to be able to drill all the way down to where it was able to uh, get to the water and every single village that he went to. I can even play a little bit. Uh, they were all really chuffed. This is the first Shocking of a hundred wells we're gonna yeah. build. I don't think this John's gonna fit. <laughs> yeah, so. There you go, boom. It is raining! How could white supremacy do this? After the water comes out of the ground, it's fed. Yeah, and they all, they're all really thrilled about it. All of the villages that he goes to are really grateful. And he doesn't just do wells. He also uh, adds in new infrastructure. He goes to the schools and gives them shelves, bookshelves and such. He add, installs modern whiteboards and projectors into them because a lot of them were using chalkboards and getting dust and chalk everywhere. Uh, and basically does really good things for these people that other people weren't. And certainly their own governments weren't doing because as we know, listing the sorts of countries that I did there, the governments in those countries aren't exactly known for being pure-hearted. Well, you know that UN that we pay billions towards that ends up subverting us? Oh, yeah. They like to pretend that they're doing this, but instead all the African countries say, no, you're just socially terraforming us, get out of our countries. Mr. Beast is doing that without all the social terraforming. So again, unless you're a mad communist, you can't really object to it. Oh, I get it. So they're going to accuse him of having like an acute case of white saviour complex or something. Yeah, yeah Rudyard is Kipling that, is, that is going is? to be inferred in, uh, in this. Oh, there was a, just to finish it off, there was also a really good thing that he did to one of the villages who was disconnected by a river from the rest of the municipal services, like the hospitals and such, and they only had a very rickety wooden bridge that got destroyed every time that the river um, flooded the banks and they had to rebuild it and a few people had died because they were on the bridge as the river, uh, as a big wave came and swept a load of them off and, and killed them. So. He got them to build a stable bridge that was above the level where the water would get hit when it uh, burst its banks, and they were all really grateful. So again, he's not even just doing wells. He was also doing really nice things for the people, the locals in these small villages. But of course, can't do nice things these days without somebody having something to say about it. How dare you go and give these people a better quality of life? How dare you go and humiliate the government of Kenya? by making it seem as though they're corrupt and don't do anything to help their people. So uh, th th this, is, this is the thing that got a lot of people talking, which is while American YouTuber MrBeast's goal was to provide clean drinking water for 500,000 people, which he did, as far as I can tell, activists say his actions shamed the Kenyan government and helped perpetuate the stereotype that Af Africa is dependent on handouts. Now, well, if, yeah, you should shame the Kenyan government. Yeah. yeah, yeah. And, uh, What's wrong with that? Yeah, the, the Kenyan government didn't exactly uh, provide that clean drinking water to these places, did it? And also, if it takes a random YouTuber, a random YouTube philanthropist to go and have to do this with his own money, then maybe parts of Africa are entirely dependent on handouts. And also, maybe certain areas across the world where you have uh, what could be described as third world populations tend to be dependent on handouts as a rule. You tend to you don't tend to find many countries in sub-Saharan Africa that aren't massively dependent on international aid, and that international aid may go to good uses if it weren't for how corrupt the governments are in places like Kenya. If the three options are the United Nations, which go and look at my segment on the UN aids twenty one principles. 
they've got things like children can consent to sex in there. So if the option is the United Nations, right, the Chinese Belt and Road Program, which buses in Chinese people to work as slave labor and then extracts them out and then gets the entire dictatorial economy hooked on their infrastructure loans to then take over the country. So UN, China, or Mr. Beast, <laughs> think I know which one I'm going to be picking, not just on efficacy grounds, but on moral grounds alone. So I don't care for the whining. Yeah, but let's let's see what, what's uh, been said in the article itself. So they said some Kenyan activists and journalists said that he spotlighted the failures of the Kenyan government. Good. Um, while Mr. Beast, ironically, he said that he anticipated as he was releasing the video that he would be cancelled following releasing the video because this keeps happening to him. As we've already covered and as we've already mentioned, it must be a rather strange position to find yourself in that I'm, I'm going off and basically saving children's lives by providing them clean drinking water and people will despise me for this. Well, another bloke cured the blind and provided food and water to people and uh, he was killed for that a couple of thousand years ago so if it's in the same vein there's kind of a track record for it heaven forbid the Kenyan government should suffer any criticism <laughs> I know <laughs> they are beyond reproach they're a leftist are they jumping not? in front of the bullet for the Kenyan government no <laughs> <laughs> that's so funny so yeah, it says the new wells will provide clean drinking water for up to 500,000 people in Cameroon, Kenya, Somalia, Uganda, and Rhodesia, Zimbabwe. Donaldson said that Jim, Jimmy Donaldson's his real name. While an accompanying fundraiser to support local water aid organizations had raised more than $300,000 by Monday morning. So it's not that he went and set up these wells and then left it all behind. He has also set up fundraising and give, donated even more money. Right, I like him. So his name's Jimmy. Yeah. I like the cut of Jimmy's jib. Yeah. I, I, you know, <laughs> good, I, good luck to him. Well, I, I, it's, it's obviously a net good, isn't it? If you're clearly. reducing human misery. Well, some people don't see it that way. So the CNN reached out to a Kenyan government spokesperson for comment, but didn't get a response. They were like, we're not saying a thing about this. Sabra Cabot-Jones, founder and CEO of Face Africa, an organization working to improve water infrastructure and sanitation in sub-Saharan Africa, told CNN, I've been doing this for 15 years, but we've been struggling to continue the work because of funding, awareness, and advocacy all taking work. Uh, overnight, this person comes along who happens to be a white male figure with a uh. huge platform, and all of a sudden, he gets all of the attention. It's kind of frustrating but it's also understanding the nature of how the world is. I love how revelatory this is. This is what we were talking about in your first segment, the grievance industrial complex. No NGO actually wants to solve its own problems because if they do, the gravy train dries up. So what happens here is you're scared that your income revenue stream and the, all of the social clout you'll get at all of these nice functions when you introduce yourself at a cocktail party saying that I'm building wells in Africa. Oh, isn't that really nice old white lady? You should become friends with me. All of that's going to disappear because a bloke actually does your job for you. That's it. Like, you don't actually care about wells in Africa. You care about getting a pat on the back from high society. And yeah, you can argue, well, he got a 10 minute YouTube video out of it. Okay. Uh, and the, all of these kids got clean drinking water out of it. Yeah, so. they're not dying. <laughs> that's, a, that's a pretty fair trade as far as I'm concerned. Uh, aspiring Kenyan politician. I wonder if he's biased in his perception mm. of this. Francis Gatto criticized Donaldson's video, saying on X that it perpetuated the stereotype that Africa is dependent on handouts and philanthropic intervention, though Gatto's comments attracted criticism of their own. I mean, once again, a lot of Africa is. But if you are... It, it, it is. If you are an aspiring politician, and the current government is very corrupt, 
and you yourself are not corrupt, and I of course wouldn't suggest that this gentleman's corrupt, why wouldn't you ally with Mr. Beast considering he's doing what people clearly want? Why wouldn't you point and say, why isn't our government doing this? Yeah, why wouldn't you say, you know what, I'm going to make, I'm, when, I'm, when I'm your president or prime minister or whatever is in Kenya, I forget, I'm going to make Mr. Beast our, our national ambassador for global development, and he's going to be building wells everywhere. If you weren't corrupt, and I also, would suggest that might be a good strategy. To, to jump ahead, um, in 2022 alone in the fiscal year, the United States provided nearly $324 million in humanitarian assistance to the people of Kenya. That'll be all on gender studies programs. More than likely. So where is this money going to, apart from gender studies programs? It's going into the back pockets of Kenyan politicians. So if it means if the US is wasting, essentially, this much money, when one guy with a YouTube channel can do more, then once, like Connor said, I know who I'm going to choose over it. But this, this was my absolute favorite one. This was my favorite bit of rage posting about this. This is some guy, Albert Nat Hyde, who managed to attract- The best community notes I've ever 1 seen. One million views on this, and almost 5,000 people liked this for some reason. Mr. Beast, 100 Wells is disrespect to Africans. He described the entire Africa as a village with its people living in huts. No, he didn't. He visited villages which had huts in them. But also, if you're going to depict the African utopia in Black Panther, maybe don't depict it as an entire place with people living in huts. Where you build mud huts into the sides of glass skyscrapers. The palace! <laughs> amazing. He projected that all Africans lack good drinking water. Well, lots of them clearly do. Yeah, if, I mean, not all of them but a lot of them, enough that this was a necessary thing to do in the first place. Right. Wells in 2023 is offensive. Why not boreholes or pipe-borne water? What? No, actually, That's a ridiculous statement. Also, um, one, sure, it, 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 it's rudimentary, but two, if they're used to a community-focused way of living, then actually the well creates a sort of social site that integrates into the way that these people expect to live. Well, some of these people that he went and built wells for, they had to take a... Um, literally a trip down a mountain to get to the most local water source though it was clean water and even that clean water was infected with parasites that gave them typhoid every so often so they had to get up at 4am in the morning before they went to school and this was the entire community including the children including the parents and they all had to go and carry uh, carry up to 40 pounds of water up and down a mountain every single day twice a day and so what did he do? He shows up and he gives them a water source that is right there on your doorstep. Yeah, but why aren't you building giant aqueducts? Why aren't you a plumber? That's genuinely his argument. But uh, Africa, Africans do not need water donation. We ain't that poor and thirsty. Once again, enough of you were. Africa is a continent with 54 countries. He must be specific where he went. He was. Yep. He said, I went to this country. I went to Kenya, Zimbabwe, Uganda. Okay. This is capitalism. He lo wanna low-key use these countries for profit. Okay, I too have schi uh, schizophrenia. And uh, he has set Africans for global ridicule by building wells we never asked him for. And the, the community note is The hilarious. community note is brilliant, where it's just, this is speculation. No, he has not. <laughs> <laughs> no, he has not. E each point absolutely demolished with facts and logic. But but, sorry, who is this guy, Albert something? Well, I'll who, tell, who is he? I'll tell you who he is. Moron, I mean, uh, he's more than that, because okay. I, I don't know how many people did this, but on this particular thread, you can do an amazing thing called scrolling down. <laughs> and if you scroll down, he's got clips. Like, oh, can you believe how awful this is? He's just doing this for attention. Also, by the way, 
use my code on this, use my <laughs> promo code on this betting website. He is a grifter. He's taking sponsorships on his spike posts. Yes. Oh, piss on off. On his Wakanda posts. What a filthy capitalist. Yeah. Mm. Trying yeah. to make money. That is a good point. We all know that's evil. Yeah. You, you've Attempting got, to not be poor. You've got a good point. So, of course, this led to some memes. Suddenly, Drop Bird's doing his account. Doing his classics. Is our basic competence hurting Africa's feelings? Mm-hmm. Apparently. Apparently so. But then I also thought to myself, this whole idea of Africa is completely dependent on handouts and African populations and the African diaspora is completely dependent on handouts, which of course they're not, which is why so many of them come to Western countries specifically for welfare handouts. And I thought, what's a good example? What's a good example of a place that has really terrible living conditions, which is only and entirely the cause of evil Western imperialism and the legacy of slavery? Well, I mean, Haiti. Haiti is a place that that uh, apparently is only destroyed because of evil colonialism and imperialism and, and slavery and is, such. Is that what you're calling the Clinton Foundation now? Uh, maybe. Um, but I decided to point out that, yes, a lot of these populations have to live on handouts because they constantly whine about how we can't do anything, our government's really corrupt because the government is really corrupt, but then they turn around and blame it on Western people. So in, in this, this is an article from NPR, the most trustworthy source, talking about the greatest heist in history, how Haiti was forced to pay reparations for freedom. And I looked into this recently and thought I'd bring it up here because I wanted somewhere to talk about it. It's, it's hilarious. They, talk, they complain about how much of this debt to France was the legacy of what the University of Virginia calls the greatest heist in history, surrounded by French gunboats. This is after the Haitian Revolution. They, do you know what they don't do, Bo? Do you know, if you were to talk about the Haitian Revolution, what's something that you would probably mention? Uh, slave revolt? What, what, Napoleon? What, what, was a, what was a big part of the slave revolt? Was it, was it the mass genocide of the white population uh, of Haiti, including yeah. the women and innocent children? Yeah. They don't mention that in here, okay. shockingly enough. And they, uh, men, they, but they do bring up that evil French colonialists, otherwise known as white people, surrounded the island with gunboats and forced uh, Haiti to pay reparations to the slaveholders, probably due to all of their family members that they brutally butchered. Didn't we, as well, just pay a shed load of reparations to Kenya for an accused massacre in the 60s when they were still under, under general well, British control? So where did all a, that money disappear to? Well, that's a question, isn't it? When we're constantly being told that we need to pay reparations, and then you look and see that the US is already paying hundreds of millions of dollars in humanitarian aid, other than pure semantics, what's the difference between the money that would be sent in reparations and the money that is sent in humanitarian aid. Uh, that money's not washed in white guilt. You've got a good point. It doesn't come with an apology note. Yeah. You're right. It doesn't smell of the tears of That's honest. what it is. Because um, the French economist Thomas Piketty, the most trustworthy economist, of course, resurrected the idea of reparations to Haiti, arguing that France owes Haiti at least $28 billion. But if we were to send that reparations over, what would happen? What's the connection Haiti and just the Af and Africa, just the just the slave trade, just in general? Well, it's the general white guilt that's always thrown at us over these, and the fact that if any white person goes over and does anything, that you're automatically assumed to be some kind of evil colonizer. Right. Okay. And, and so I found it funny that we already give them lots of money and aid, mm. thirteen billion over the course of about ten to thirteen years. They still 
and the country still looks like this. Well, it's still one of the epicenters of child trafficking in the world. So yep. I would assume, unfortunately, quite a lot of the money gets funneled into that trade. And also, if France needs to give any money, well, France already gives, let me see here, um, 10 to 15 billion euros in foreign aid a year. A lot of, I imagine, will probably be included in any funds that are going to Haiti. I didn't know we'd be talking about Haiti, but it's an interesting thing, the history of it. It used to be called, what they call it, San Domingo, I think, or something? Yeah, that was the name before uh, the right. revolt. Um, because you've also got the Dominican Republic, right? And it's a bit like North, the North-South Korea thing. Mm. It's like they're right next to each other. They've got very, very similar resources. They're the, sort of the same people. And just one culture, one economy is sort of okay, and the other one's a complete car crash. And uh, I... I it's, it's, it's like North telling, or South it? Korea and Dominican Republic of Haiti. It's just, it's, it's just so obvious. Yeah. Just don't run your country like this. But uh, this is all... To and if you do, the results will be disastrous. Yeah. This is all to basically say, um, don't bite the hand that feeds and black grievance never gets anybody anything. Maybe you should, when somebody comes over and does something kind, like build 100 wells across many countries in Africa, maybe some gratitude as the people who were in those villages who actually got the water displayed because they were all very happy to receive it. They were really grateful. Maybe be more like that and don't push your own grievance politics for your own political goals. Simple. Yeah. And with that actually wholesome message onto the video comments, I suppose. So I remember you guys talked about Friends a while we're echoing back. Again. And no, it's fine, it's fine. Yeah, it's about as bad as you guys are remembering it. Never liked it myself as a kid. But um, I've been catching up with it a lot, though, because it's always playing at my workplace because they keep playing the reruns. But there was one very funny episode where the bimbo character gets obsessed with this uh, feminist book called Be Your Own Windkeeper, which is all New Age nonsense about how men are stealing women's wind. It's kind of funny, though, that all the actors that played in this scene, this episode probably all believe that nonsense now. Yeah, Friends has some very 90s socially progressive messaging in it, but they also do play it for laughs of where, where is it? Chandler's dad's an obvious tranny. Um, Ross gets cucked on his first marriage because she turns out she's a lesbian. Oh, yeah, then, she decides to become a new age lesbian overnight. Doesn't yeah, she? and then they all end up in monogamous heterosexual relationships at the end, except for Joey, who then tried to bugger off and have his own series shagging about. And it turns out, actually, that the storyline wasn't that interesting. It got cancelled. Well, I don't really know that much, but I never... One of my friends is absolutely obsessed with Friends. She constantly goes on about it. If you need a gift for her, just get her something Friends-related. But I do know a bit about it, and I know that they did... I think it was the um, stealth pilot that they did in the last series of Friends. Stealth pilots, when you take an episode that's in a normal series and have it focus on one character as a stealth pilot for a spin-off show that's going to be focused on them. The Office has done it as well. They tried to do it with Dwight. But they did the stealth, uh, stealth pilot for Joey. And as far as I'm aware, everybody despised that episode and said it was really bad and they never went further with it. So I know that much. Again, on things that are implicitly right-wing. <laughs> Um, on to the next one. So after listening to Symposium 43 on ideology, I think I had an epiphany why liberalism has gone wrong, actually. And it's because it has a progressive bent to it, which is the underlying Judeo-Christian temporal understanding of history. Instead of being linear and progressive, we need it to be looked at temporally more cyclically. 
And so by doing that, it will totally change things and we won't be ending up with Marxism in a utopian dream. Part of that, and I discussed this with AA in our book club on Prophets of Doom, um, the cyclical and the linear tracts of history are not incompatible within the Christian framework because the linear tract would be set by someone who isn't human, whereas human affairs can go in a cyclical pattern. The problem is if you, if you de-god the linear tract of history, then that's mankind's job to then steward it towards the progressive utopias, basically heaven on earth, which ends it's up being Tony hellish. Tony Blair's job, damn it. Exactly. It's yeah. inevitable. Yeah, genuinely. That's, that's, the, that's the delusional Promethean belief that undergirds a lot of that. But, but there you go. Um, On to the comments then. A couple of... Uh, couple of, oh, I'm just resting on the mouse. There we go. Sorry, I'm a boomer. A couple of honorary ones. California refugee again. Good to see Bo. He's normally so powerful, he must be restrained behind the website paywall, <laughs> but he breaks free sometimes and gets spicy and passionate and truthful. Yeah, genuinely, when we were reconfiguring the podcast layout, we did say we want to see more Bo because the audience likes Bo. So here's Bo. It's very kind. I take the compliment. <laughs> um, Hector X, Connor getting the date wrong is the best start to book. Is it? Is it the wrong date? The second. Did I? Bugger. Okay, I must have miswrote that at the top. I don't know why I did that then. Um, I mustn't have been paying attention. I was preparing to spill my coffee. And the spirit of Callum has infested me where I'm getting the, the podcast intro wrong. Um, Lord Nerevar, the Palestine stuff really has been a blessing in disguise for our side of politics. I'm sorry, this is your bit. Um, all we needed was several million clowns to show their true colours and now the population is starting to fully radicalise against them. Remigration is now a normalized part of mainstream political discourse. This is what we should have been doing all along. And it's disappointing that it took like a hundred thousand to now a million man march plan to make manifest the consequence of mass migration to allow us to criticize it. But we'll take what we can get, I suppose. Um, did you want to read your own comments or do you want me to? No, go ahead. No, it's fine. Okay, no worries. I appreciate it. Eric, Eric Nickerson. Good morning, gents. Here is the question of human rights. Does a specific country's government actually have a fundamental obligation to protect the human rights of anyone besides its own citizens and the legal residents? And he says, I'd personally argue the government has no obligation to protect the human rights of anyone who isn't a citizen or legal resident in that country. Well, that's the conceit of things like the UN Declaration on Human Rights and other internationalist organizations is they globalize it and they make it everybody's commitment. They make it everybody's responsibility to have to uh, protect the human rights of everybody. That's why if you get somebody showing up on your doorstep saying, I'm a refugee, you're forced by international conventions to have to accept them or else you're going to face all sorts of financial and economic sanctions, mostly from the US, mm. who are really the, the, uh, the enforcers of this international system that we operate under right now. Whereas I agree, I do think that the government should protect the rights of its own citizens, of its own people. And if you're doing things that are actively against that, then you should be counted as traitors. No, I think there's, I think there's a very insightful structural analysis. I'd also add that the moral impetus of doing that is rights are conditional on reciprocity. And so if you stand on a street corner and declare your intention to annex London to a global caliphate, all right, well, if you don't believe in free speech, I'll hold you to your own standards. Bye-bye. Sorry, you don't get it anymore. See you later. Sick of tolerating the intolerant. Yeah. Yeah, that guy there has hit the nail on the head. Uh, it's a very pertinent question he's asked here yeah, because the logical conclusion is you're obliged to taking take in and look after everyone in the world then anyone that can physically get to your island or your country it, yeah it, yeah the logical conclusion is a, a crazy absurd thing hmm. uh, kevin fox you don't have to look far to see why asylum claims take so long to process and we accept 70% compared to 20% else in europe how about we fire the lot of them, I assume at the Home Office, and bring in retired military and police officers, preferably the ones who took early retirement and police 
before the police began to go woke and then see how quickly asylum claims are dealt with and watch the acceptance rate plummet. I was asked about this in GB News once and they said, okay, do we need a whole new, we need to bring in the military to process asylum claims. And I went, yeah, what you can do is you can pay me £10 an hour just put no on all of them because I don't want them here. It's not, I hate the premise that we just need to get them processed faster. No, 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 we need to send them all the way. Go. I, I don't want to bias this here, but I just want to be as accurate as possible. What Kevin is asking for there is essentially march on Rome. <laughs> we need to get the military <laughs> to come in and enforce the laws as they should do. Obviously, we cannot endorse um, <laughs> any kind of military coup whatsoever, <laughs> but that is an accurate reading of the scale of organization that would be needed were a replacement of the current Home Office to take place. I did an article recently called, uh, I think I called it The Death of the American Republic, where I talked about all sorts of parallels with the death of the ancient Roman Republic. But there's lots of parallels with any and all countries in the West, including Great Britain, that if the fabric of society falls apart to such a point, you may or may not then get mobs or paramilitaries, and then you get the actual military to keep control. That is usually what happens in history. That's what That's the French sort of the warned Macron about. Of things. So... Yeah, the idea that the military might need to be used at some point. Get used to that possibility. Interestingly, on a parallel with the fall of Rome, I believe that there has been recent genetic research done, which has shown that f- towards the period that was the collapse of the Roman Republic, or at least the fall of Rome, uh, there seemed to be an influx of foreign native foreign. Foreign populations coming into the coming into the empire. That's they, more. That's more the fall of the Western Roman Empire. I was specifically talking about the fall of the Republic, yeah. which is obviously a fair few hundred years earlier. But just quickly to say, I have already seen. I saw a tweet the other day where there was some soldiers on Whitehall hmm. because the police just can't or won't do their job. So, um, you know, when Biden got in, there was loads of yeah. loads of soldiers, uh, barbed wire fences around so, the capital. There's already sort of. The very, very beginnings of that has already started, it seems. Curious they weren't deployed during the BLM riots that caused billions of dollars in damage and killed about 30 people, but it's almost like the elites want the chaos. Um, just a couple more on, on this last first segment here. So if you live, honestly, these all just sound like a whole bunch of money laundering schemes. It's probably part of it. Yep. And Justin B, thanks to the diversity, equity, and inclusion agenda, we've elected people into the highest offices in the country that agree with this stuff, presumably, and this will never be fixed now, not without major change at the top. Yes, um, major change is coming in the UK. It's just not going to be not going to be the change that we like for some time, at least. Um, my segment, Matt. Pro-natalist policies are always decried by feminists, putting women back in the home and turning them into incubators, abdicating the responsibility to form families, outsources births to part of the world that are brutally patriarchal. Don't make me approve pr- uh, of it. Wherein women are treated horribly, made to cover from head to toe, and under the unaccountable control of men, or to retain Western lifestyles of unsatisfying temporal comfort. But it's not about hypocrisy and moral consistency. It's obviously about well, hierarchy and selfishness. Th- th- there's, a, there's a question. We all eventually have to serve someone yeah. or serve something. The question is, are you going to serve your family and serve for your family? Or are you going to become a mindless worker drone for your boss where, so you can make record profits for them? This is why, again, I've said uh, uh, certain things are satanic. Uh, what I mean by that is you're under the delusion of serving purely yourself when, in fact, that was the bargain originally in the myth or truth, I mean, unlikely to be true, of Genesis, which is, if you do this, you'll be like a god. Well, who's promising you that? The, the guy that hates truth and goodness and all those things. So, so maybe don't be so deluded as to be so utterly selfish that you destroy your civilization. Um, citizen philosopher, 
Connor, your segment makes me very happy that I got married young and started having children immediately. By a young age, I was inspired by a quote by Dennis Prager, the best way to make the world look like a better place is to make better people. Needless to say, I took that literally, and my two daughters will be helping to welcome their sister into the world in February. Well, congratulations, mate. Um, I suppose we're all just trying our best to get there as well. Sophie Liv, so we're experiencing a baby bust. Should we offer mothers support so they can stay at home and have loads of babies? No, we don't have the money for that. We can spend billions of pounds on migrant hotels, though, hosting migrants that don't work, don't speak the language, but will multiply because they've got nothing else to do. Well, it turns out actually some of them do work, because if you go down the road to Migrant Tower, you know those brand new procured bicycles that are right outside them. Um, oh, the I've ones s- with the Uber Eats bags on Yeah, it's weird that they've all started becoming delivery drivers despite being refugees. Funny that, isn't it? Um, don't use Uber Eats. I was going to say one thing that's just sprung to mind. Both the National Socialists and the Soviets would give women literally a medal yeah. for having loads of kids. Yeah. Part, part, of the, part of the problem of that was, um, particularly the Romanian orphanages, they didn't create the infrastructure that would allow them to take care of said children. So obviously, have the amount of children that you can give a happy life to. But yeah, they, even they understood that we didn't want to destroy our civilization, particularly because the Soviets outlawed abortion because originally they had no um, requirement abortion and divorce on demand. And then abortions clips births and they were like, oh, we need to be a bit reactionary here. We may, maybe we shouldn't do that. Maybe we're driving ourselves to extinction for a moment. Um, Thomas Howell, the childless class aren't childless. They're too busy paying for big kid government who will just sweep up half their salary, keep taking on new projects they pay for. And really, it just needs to be booted out for the louse that it is. I don't really understand that comment. I'm going to be honest. but. Um, Thanks for the attempt. And the last one, X, Y, and Z. There seems to be a cultural element at play with the demographic collapse. There's nothing stopping Muslims from having large families. Also pay attention to how many men of a certain demographic have more than one woman of roughly the close age close with him. That's a big driver as well. It's a family breakup where some men are having children with multiple women but not sticking around. Yes, originally the law says monogamy is the only legally recognized marital status. Our laws and policies have a way of being easily gained, unfortunately so. I'll read a few and then I think that's it. So uh, the Unbreakable Litany says here, very interesting comment. My partner is of Ghanaian heritage and she told me that the corruption is morally ingrained into at least West African cultures. They do things like pray for wealth. So any opportunity to gain wealth, no matter the method, must be God given. Thus, they constantly lie, cheat and steal, even from family. That actually lines up with some... Uh, reports that I've heard, well, some some accounts that I've heard from people who've traveled around those parts of the world, where they'll see that anybody who comes into any sort of money or material comfort at all will immediately be inundated by their own family members begging for handouts. This makes sense with the uh, Nigerian 419 scams that are so common to get in your email inbox. So if you get any sort of money, like you say, it must be God-given. And if you get any sort of money, well, you owe it to me as well. You owe it to everybody. There's a real sort of um, negative communal aspect to it where it's so community-based that no single person is allowed to become any better off than anybody else, even in a way that might down the line, long-term, improve everybody's condition. So it is a flattening to the lowest common denominator in those sorts of cultures, yeah. sadly. Gross and unforgivable, yeah. Kevin Fox, maybe, and I'm just spitballing here, maybe we should send all of the overseas aid and UN payments Britain makes uh, should be given to Mr. Beast instead because he actually does what the money we're sending these countries to do. He's doing fine without our help, actually. I'd just rather keep my own money. Yeah, I, I, I don't want any of my money going to this. I'd rather be able to keep a hold of it so I can prove my own quality of life before anybody else's. And if then in the future I'm able to earn enough money to do philanthropic adventures if I want to, I'll do them. Yeah, I, I endorse that comment. Um, let's make Mr. Beast world king. <laughs> I, I, think he needs to, I think he needs to put some wells in Swindon if he's heard of it. 
Baron Von Warhawk, why is Mr. Beast so popular? Because he seems like a genuinely nice guy who makes videos of himself doing nice things along with entertaining content. His videos tend to be a bit wholesome, so it appeals to children. Honestly, watching a Libyan guy win the Mr. Beast Olympics for his family is far better than watching Drag Queen Story Act. <laughs> That's a good point. Mr. Beast has my subscription, and I implore you guys to subscribe as well. Well, certainly, I would rather my own children be watching that kind, those kinds of videos than most of the other dross that passes for children's entertainment on YouTube these days. It's not the kind of thing that I would watch, but I support him in his so, Certainly, I'd rather them be watching that than watching anything on TikTok. Yeah. And uh, let's go with one last one. Um, Hector Rex, how dare white people, checks notes, give people clean water in Africa? I, I have been reliably informed that black terrible. lives only matter if they can make money out of them. Yeah, I think that's... Uh, we've run a yep. little bit over. So no worries. We well, that. thanks for all leaving comments. Again, just a reminder, um, Epochs is out on Saturday and it's free and it respects Armistice Day, so it's well worth the time going to watch. And we've got Lads Hour at three o'clock tomorrow. You can join us for a Q&A because it's our third year anniversary. Lights are still on, thanks to you guys. Thank you to Harry and Bo. It is, in fact, the 8th of November, so I'll correct myself right before the end. And we are back tomorrow at one o'clock with The Daily Show. Until then, thank you and goodbye. 